0: Have I let you out early any time in the last couple of months? No? I don't have to do it this morning either then. I was thinking maybe I had some time left in the bank. An hour? I got an hour in the bank? Okay. (laughs) You know, of all of them, great promises in the Bible. One of the greatest has to be where Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It is so amazing as you uh, peruse church history. You see the the violent opposition to the church of Jesus Christ through the years, governmental attempts to snuff it out, even Strangely enough, ecclesiastical attempts to snuff it out, and yet through it all, the church remains. This amazing universal promise to the church is something we can take tremendous comfort in. But we also at the same time have to recognize that it is a universal promise. It is not a specific promise to any particular fellowship, any particular church body that's localized anywhere. The book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, you'll remember Jesus walks among the churches there in, in modern day Turkey, seven churches. He evaluates those local assemblies, those local congregations. And He threatens several of them with Extinction. He says he will remove their candlestick if they do not repent of their sin. There is a promise to the the church at large, that which God is doing, that it will never, ever be snuffed out. But that's not true of a local congregation. It's not true at all. All around us, churches are in the process of dying. They are dying. In fact... Experts estimate that 80% of the churches, 80%, that's 8 out of 10 churches in America are in the downside of their life cycle. That is that they are sliding towards extinction. 8 out of 10. Approximately 4,000 churches disappear in this country every single year. They go out of business, close their doors, they scatter the sheep, whatever's left of them, just disperse somewhere. The church is gone. The largest Protestant denomination in America, the Southern Baptists, report that just among their own churches, that last year 8,000 churches did not baptize a single convert. 8,000 Southern Baptist churches whose baptistries remained stone dry last year. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. In fact, the experts tell us the average conversion rate in the United States today is 85 to 1. That is that it takes 85 members for every one convert. Eighty-five to one. In 1990, or excuse me, in 1900, rather, the turn of the last century, 1900, there were 27 churches in the United States for every 10,000 people. In 1950, the ratio had declined to 17 churches for every 10,000 people. 1996, the ratio was 11 churches for every 10,000 people. I don't have a statistic more current than that, but I would be very confident in telling you the ratio is not getting better. It is continuing to decline. The population of this country is growing. We now stand, I just read yesterday, at 303 million people in this country, and yet the churches are dropping, and dropping. Billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars of church property sits idle and essentially unused. Ghostly gray monuments to a former glory. I've visited churches in this Inland Empire area where the auditoriums would seat hundreds and yet there are but a handful. So what's the answer? What is the answer to all of this doom and gloom? Shall we give up? Was the promise that Christ made somehow been overturned? Has the kingdom of darkness prevailed? The answer is that new churches must be planted. Just as the human population ages and dies and must be replenished with new births, so the church must be replenished. As individual congregations age, decline, and die, new ones must be planted to take their place. And in fact, church planting must become so aggressive that by the grace of God, we can begin to reverse some of the statistics of the declining percentage of church to population in this country. If not, we will soon look like Western Europe. A burned over wasteland where the glory of Christ once was on display. Last week, we handed out in the bulletin these two-sided color things, <laughs> pieces of paper, <laughs> valuable pieces of paper, statement of our core values. Do you remember that? If you weren't here last week, by the way, we want you to have one of these. There's a stack of them back on the sound booth. You can get one as you leave. You ought to have one. Everybody ought to have one. Take it, put it in your Bible. Pull it out from time to time. Look it over. Read it. Let the Spirit of God cause it to really soak into your heart. You want to know where we're going? This is where we're going. This is where we're going. Devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, we said. Determined to obey the Bible. Dedicated to prayer. Daring to minister by faith. Developing disciples to reach the nations. That fifth core value is what I want to focus on this morning with you. And in particular, a sub-point of that. And that is the planting of churches. Church planting. By the grace of God, it is our desire... To plant four churches in the next eight years. When we first reduced this to writing, it was to plant four churches in the next ten years. Time has passed and nothing has happened, and it's now four in eight. At least, nothing has happened that we can observe yet. God is at work. I'm convinced. What I want to do with you this morning is I want to look with you at five critical aspects of church planting. Okay? Five critical aspects of church planting so that we will understand and embrace our goal of planting four churches in the next eight years. This is a sermon designed to persuade you of the importance of church planting. Here we go. Five critical aspects. Are you ready? Number one. The first critical aspect, I'm calling the mandate to plant. The mandate to plant. This mandate to plant churches is very simply derived from the New Testament. In fact, it's, it's so simply derived from the New Testament, it, it ought to be self-evident to everybody. And it comes from just a basic understanding of what the church is to begin with. So let me review a couple of things with you. The Greek word for church, ekklesia, in its most basic form means an assembly, an assembly, a grouping, a gathering of individuals, the ekklesia. The word was very common in secular Greek, and it spoke of assemblies of people, crowds of people, gatherings of people that came together for both lawful and unlawful purposes. For example, Acts chapter 19, verse 32, don't turn there, you can just mark it down and check it on your own. It speaks of the mob that gathered there at Ephesus because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and they're called the ecclesia, they are the assembly, they are the gathering. It is an unlawful gathering, but it is nonetheless an ecclesia, a gathering. Verse 39, same chapter, Acts 19, it speaks of a lawful assembly, same word. So, in its most basic sense, to a Greek-speaking person of the first century, the Ecclesia translated church, by the way, to us in English, just means the gathering. The gathering. In fact, in Paul's earliest letters, he uses the word ecclesia, translated church, and he modifies it with other words in order to make it clear what kind of assembly or gathering he's talking about. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, for example. Paul writes there to the church, that's Paul's early letter, and he says, Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It is the ecclesia of the Thessalonians. It is the assembly made up of Thessalonians, but not all Thessalonians, only those that are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul adds these modifying words that designate the particular nature and place of the assembly. Gradually over time, in Christian language, this word "ecclesia" assembly, church, began to take on a technical meaning. And when you see that, what happens is that the modifying words drop off. You don't longer need to say that it is the church of the Thessalonians. And you don't need to say that it is the church in Jesus Christ. You just begin to speak about the church, the assembly, the ecclesia. And it comes to be a technical term for that which we understand today, the gathering of the people of God in one place. We are the ecclesia. We are the church. It is a Christian assembly, and that's how we come to understand it today. Sometimes people come to me and they ask me uh, to show them where in the Bible it says that you have to join the church. Can you show me a verse, they'll say, where it says I need to join the church? And my answer is no, I cannot. I cannot show you a verse anywhere that says you must join the church. And the reason I cannot do that is because it is the presupposition that underlies the whole New Testament that you will be a part of the church if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It is so obvious, it is like the air you breathe, it is the environment in which you live, that you are part of the church. As far as the New Testament is concerned, all Christians are part of a local assembly, a local ecclesia, and the New Testament knows nothing of anything else. In fact, the vast majority of the words, I believe it's used 114 times in the New Testament, and the vast majority of the words ecclesia are in reference to a local assembly, a local assembly. And that local assembly is comprised of all who live in a particular geographical location and profess faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. They're part of a church. Now, there are some places in the New Testament where the church is used to designate all believers. kind of the concept of the universal church. That is true. It is used in some places. Acts 9.31 is one of those places. But listen, even this universal church has a visible reality in space and time. That is, you can see real people who are part of this universal church, real flesh and blood. In fact, the body of Christ, the church universal, as I said, is never, ever contemplated in the New Testament as existing independent of membership in a local assembly. Absolutely foreign. Absolutely foreign. What this means, beloved, as far as the apostles were concerned, and therefore, as the spokesman of God, as far as God is concerned, that to be a Christian and not have fellowship in a local assembly, a local church, is is something that's not even contemplated as possible by God. He doesn't even open it up to be considered or talked about. You are to be in a local church, and part of it, if you profess allegiance to Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, the command in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20, to go and make disciples of all the nations, is fundamentally at its core a command to plant churches the great commission is a plan or is a command to plant churches it is not a command for individual soul winning it is a command for church planting in fact i will be even more bold and will step further out onto this limb and what I would say is that any kind of evangelistic effort that fails to enroll the converts into a local assembly is not New Testament evangelism. Whatever else it might be, it is not New Testament evangelism. The failure to value the church, I think, is one of the major blights on evangelicalism today. It is the church it is all about the church. When Jesus told the eleven disciples that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. Right? Acts 1.8. He was telling them to go plant churches. It was all about church planting. It was a mandate to plant churches. Listen with me to the testimony of the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts two, verse forty-one. If you're using a pew Bible, page ten ninety. Acts two, beginning in verse forty-one. The result of Peter's preaching on Pentecost, the birth of the church. Peter beseeches these people. He says, "Verse the end of verse forty. Be saved from this perverse generation." So then, verse 41, those who had received his word were baptized and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They're together in a local assembly. They're intertwined in one another's life. They're involved together. They're bringing themselves under the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship with one another. The koinonia, the the breaking of the bread, literally the celebration of communion, the Lord's Supper, and and they were devoting themselves to prayer. This is all happening in the context of a church. This is the church of Jerusalem. There's not a bunch of lone ranger Christians kind of hanging out here, there, and everywhere. They are together in a local assembly. Keep going to the right. Acts chapter 5, verse 10. It's kind of scary to be part of that early church, by the way. Right after they took the offering, they backed the hearse up to the back door, right? This is Ananias and Sapphira. The Lord judges them very strictly here because and there could be no seed of pollution in this early church. And so these hypocrites who wanted the people to think that they were all sold out for this Uh, this church and they were holding back for themselves and so they were judged with death verse 10 and she that is uh, uh, Sapphira his wife fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last and the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things that's evangelism And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Do you see this? They're together again as a church. Verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord. Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. The church was growing. It was growing, but it was a local fellowship. It met in one place. It ministered together. Chapter Eleven, verse nineteen. Acts chapter eleven, verse nineteen. This comes after the the um, stoning of Stephen, and the church now at Jerusalem is scattered. And so then those who were scattered because of the persecution, verse 19, that arose in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and to Cyprus and to Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, that is in Syria, and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord, and the news about them reached the ears of what? the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came about that for an entire year they met with The church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The church in Antioch. Believers together. Chapter 13. Verse 1. Same church. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Mahnayan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What work had he called them? Planting churches, planting churches not evangelistic crusades planting churches chapter 14 verse 21 14:21 21. this is a report this is a summary on that work to which Barnabas and Paul had been called After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. And from there they sailed back to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples." How did they report to the church that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles? What was it they came back and told the church in Antioch? They told them about churches that had been planted. Disciples that had been made and enfolded into these churches. Elders that had been set apart to give leadership over these churches. The evangelistic work, a successful evangelistic work, was measured by church planting. It was all about church planting. I'll give you one more. Chapter 15, verse 41. Paul's heading back out again. It's time for another missionary tour. Verse 41, he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Churches. Strengthening the churches. Okay, What was Paul's work about? What had God set him apart to do? It was to plant churches. Read the book of Acts and you cannot help but see that it is the planting of churches that is what it's all about. It's all about it. These churches were planted all over the Mediterranean area. And they were planted among various people groups who were anything but homogeneous. They had different languages. They had different cultures. In fact, the beauty this is the beauty, listen to this this is the beauty of the New Testament church. It can go anywhere. It can go anywhere. It has the flexibility to bridge across language, across culture, across socioeconomic boundaries, across age boundaries. The New Testament church, the genius of it all is that it can go to all parts of the earth and bring the message of redemption. Think with me on this. The Old Testament worship of God was essentially a come-and-see religion. It was a come-and-see religion. That is, that God had localized His presence there in Jerusalem, right? Within the temple. And so you were to come. It was strategically planted at the crossroads of the world. And as the nations came through those economic crossroads, it was to come and see the God of glory. And so you came before Him in these very rigidly enforced rituals and ceremonies. Everything was managed and controlled down to the minute detail as to how you could come before the presence of God. Come and see. New Testament Christianity is go and tell. It's not come and see, it's go and tell. It's go and tell. Reveal to the nations the true worship of God. That it is not something that is through established rituals. The true worship of God is from the inner person in accordance with the truth revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said it to the woman at the well in John 4 and verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Christianity is a go and tell. So there is a theological mandate to plant churches, beloved. But beyond the theological mandate, there are some very sound practical reasons why we must plant more churches. So let me just give you a few of those. The rate of baptism decreases as a church matures. The older a church becomes, the more mature it becomes, the more established it becomes, the ratio of baptisms decline. Secondly, church plants by their nature emphasize evangelism and the discipleship of new believers. And therefore, they are dollar for dollar the most economical means of evangelism available to us. The conversion ratio of the church at large in America, I told you, is 85 to 1. In a church plant, it can't be 85 to 1 because there's not 85 people to begin with. Do you understand? Beyond that, church plants have less bureaucracy than established churches. There is less red tape. There are less committees. There are less constituents that have to be brought in and brought up to speed and made happy before anything can be done. The older and more mature a church is, the more established it becomes, the more bureaucracy it layers itself with. It's just a fact of human existence. Church plants are nimble, they're quick, they're agile, they're streamlined. Beyond that, church plants provide opportunities for service and ministry that established, old, established churches don't typically provide. Normally, older, established, more mature churches are all staffed up, right? So when you're new and you come in and you want to serve, it's difficult to find a place. We've had people express that to us. We want to serve, but we're not sure where and how. How do we get in? How do we fit in? How do we, how do we find our way in? to be in her circle. Church plants they don't have that problem. There are opportunities for service everywhere. Smaller churches, which are typical of a plant, have a greater level of spiritual accountability and mutual edification. You can't hide when there's only 20 people. Okay? Your absence will be noticed and missed. This fellowship is big enough for people to hide. Don't test me. Okay, don't test me in this and come up to me and say, was I here last week or not? Okay, I don't know. That's between you and God. It's just too big. I can't remember whether I saw you last week or not. I can't even remember if I saw you last month or not. Part of that's my problem. <laughs> a memory issue, but you understand what I'm saying? It's so big. If you want to come and hide, you want to just occupy pew space, you come in right at 1025, you blow out the door at 1159, you follow you know, I can feel you, by the way, on my backside when we're going up the aisle. You're right behind me, and you're out the door, or you scoot out the side door. I know about you, Okay? <laughs> There have been some of you who have been coming for a year and I've never met you. You know who you are. You can hide here. You can't hide the church plant. You've got to be more involved in each other's life. There's a, there's a greater level of spiritual accountability. hope your roast doesn't burn. We've got a lot of territory to cover here. Here's another practical advantage of church planting. Church planting stimulates established churches to grow spiritually in order to replace leadership. This is huge. As leaders are sent out in church planting endeavors, it creates a void, a vacancy, a vacuum that new leadership has to rise up and then fill. And when new leadership rises up, guess what? They bring new ideas with them. And new ideas generate the possibilities for seeing things differently than they did before. And maybe God is speaking through new people with new ideas. It's just healthy for the church. Beyond that, church planting gives for the established church, the mature church, the mother church, if you will, a reason to exist that exceeds or or transcends their own institutional survival. It's not just about keeping this thing going, you know, we have a purpose greater than the fact whether we survive here or not. Those are some practical reasons. With all that evidence, the biblical mandate, all these practical reasons to do it, how come it's not being done? Why aren't churches doing this? What are the reasons for a lack of church planting? Well, here's a few. Lack of vision. Lack of vision among church leaders. It's just not even on their radar screen. They don't even think about it. They're so occupied in doing whatever there is they're doing and they just don't have time to think about it. Another one is provincialism or pastoral ego. You attend a pastor's conference and everybody gets their cup of coffee and they saddle on up next to each other and So how big is your church? It's like the first question you get asked. How big is your church? It's less than a thousand. That's what I tell them. It's less than a thousand. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's just unbelievable. People get all wrapped up in that stuff. All wrapped up in that. Another reason that it doesn't happen is there is a perceived threat to the existing church. There's this notion that if we get involved in church planting, that it's going to be nothing but loss for us. We're going to lose membership. We're going to lose dollars. We're going to lose workers. And so it's loss, loss, loss. And why in the world you work so hard to get people to come in and to get a balanced budget and on and on? Why in the world would you ever give it away? Just keep... Holding your arms around it and holding it in. It's kind of like squeezing jello, by the way. The tighter you squeeze your hand, the less you'll have. It's a lack of knowledge about how to plant churches. It's just a general lack of knowledge because most churches aren't doing it. So they don't know how to do it. There's a scarcity of church planters just a scarcity of men that are qualified and and passionate about wanting to do it. And so there just aren't very many church planters. And maybe one of the strongest reasons here is a lack of faith. A lack of faith and a willingness to sacrifice for the work of the gospel outside of our little corner of the world. That's probably the biggest reason right there. It is the faithlessness... Of God's people and a parochial view of the world, right? Why should we sacrifice for somebody else? I'll read your quote here by Pastor Alex Montoya, church of which he is the pastor. They planted over 20 churches. He says, church planting is no easy task. Leaders in churches have been unwilling to pay the price to plant a church. Listen to this. Like giving birth, it is painful, expensive, and traumatic. When I do uh, premarital counseling and with a young couple, they're getting ready to marry, we always talk about having children. And one of the things that I remind them of rather strongly is, do not wait until you think you can afford to have children or you will never have children. Having children is an act of faith. It requires sacrifice. It is painful. It is expensive. And it is traumatic. But it's the means by which the next generation comes into this world, isn't it? There's no other way. Church planting will require us. Let's talk about Foothill. It will require Foothill to make sacrifice. We will have to sacrifice personal friendships and relationships as we send out some of our most qualified, some of our best leadership in order to plant churches. And we may, depending on circumstances, ask for volunteers to go out with them and the volunteers we'll be looking for will be some of our best people. Those that are most engaged in ministry, most competent at the ministry they're doing, we want to send our best. And the reason we want to send our best is to increase the likelihood of a live birth. We don't want to send the malcontents and people who can just, you know, fog a mirror. We want to send the best. (laughs) It's part of our application process. Here, breathe. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, you're in. <laughs> some of us are still hurting from the loss of the Wilsons two years ago. Some more than others. Some of you are still new, you don't even know who Wilsons, who are they? Go out and look on the wall out there in the foyer, and figure it out. There's still some, still some pain here. But it's worth it. Beloved, it's worth it. That's the mandate. Secondly, (laughs) the man. I got to get it done, Vincent, because I'm not preaching next week. The man who plants. All right, we'll move this quickly here. The man who plants. Okay, not just anybody can plant a church. Not just anybody can do it. A successful church planter must be elder qualified. We'll just begin with that. He has to be elder qualified. First Timothy three, Titus one has to meet those qualifications. That's not negotiable. But beyond that, there are certain uh, unique ministry gifts and temperament that are important for a successful church planter. It is an arduous task and not just anybody can do it. So from the life of the Apostle Paul, right, the preeminent church planter, I think there's some things we can learn about the man. Here they are. OK, you'll just have to scribble them down. You better to get the get the CD. First, they have to have recognized effectiveness in the local church. That's Acts 13. We read it together. There has to be a recognition of effectiveness in the local church. Paul was a pillar in the church before he was a planter for the church. Second, they have to be called of God and sent out by the local church. Acts 13 again. Acts 14, when he comes back and makes report, okay sent out by the church, called of God, sent out by the church, responsible to report back to the church. Third, you have to have the ability to work as a team player. You got to be a team player. Paul's church planning ministry is always marked by a team effort. There's Barnabas, there's Silas, there's Timothy, there's Luke. It's always in a team context. OK, you got to be a team player. Beyond that, you have to be unrelentingly evangelistic unrelentingly evangelistic. Romans 1, 16 and 17, where I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Romans 15, verse 20, Paul says, I'm not going to go somewhere and build on another man's foundation. I'm not interested in pastoring an established church. What I'm interested in doing, what I've been called to do, is to plant churches, so I'm going places where no one else has been. Unrelentingly evangelistic. If you are not, then a church plant will become nothing more than then sheep swapping. They'll leave one place where they're somewhat unhappy, and they'll come there uh, to the new plants. In fact, Professor Montoya, who I took a church planting class with him, he said, uh, "Mark this down." He said, "Church planting brings out all the weirdos." He said, "Just like, just count on it. it." Has to be unrelentingly evangelistic. Beyond that, it has to be strategic. Strategic. Read the Book of Acts and get a map out while you're reading. And look at the cities that Paul goes to and look at the ones he skips over. Paul goes to large population areas. He goes to places that are, that, are, um, that are important in their influence. He does not go to rural areas. He doesn't go and plant churches. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong in planting rurally. I'm just saying that strategically in the New Testament, Paul goes to the big places and establishes the church. And he establishes a church that is reproducing. And that, that reproducing church takes it out to the rural areas. So he's very strategic in where he went. He went to cities. He went to synagogues. He went to places of prayer. He went to marketplaces. He's very strategic. Beyond that, he didn't waste time on hardened or antagonistic people. Okay, If, they wanna, if they're just hardened and antagonistic of the gospel, he just passed right over them. He said that to the Jews in Acts 13:46. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, I'm off to the Gentiles. Here's the gospel. Okay, And if you don't want it, then I'm off. I don't have time. Have the ability to communicate with all kinds of people. Has to be the ability to communicate all kinds of people. All types of people. Jews, Gentiles, philosophers, jailers. Finally, optimistic. Successful church planter has to be Optimistic. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. I love this. He says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. (laughs) There's a great opportunity here. And, man, they're they're really coming at me. (laughs) You want to think about optimism? Think about Caleb. Old Caleb, right? Joshua 14. Caleb's 85 years old, and he says to Joshua, Hey, you know, remember, I'm supposed to have the hill country here. Well, let me add it. <laughs> you know, my arm's still strong. Got to have a Caleb-like attitude, you know? 85, that's nothing. Just get in the game. Put your hat on. Get in the game. Third, it takes money. The money to plant. The mandate, the man, the money. It takes money to plant churches. Here in America, even on some sort of a declining support basis, you're probably looking at a couple hundred thousand dollars to plant a church. You're looking at at least a couple hundred thousand. If you go to the 1040 window, okay, that's that part of the world that's bordered, right, by the 10th and 40th degree latitude, where the largest population of unreached people reside. In fact, where the largest population of the world resides. If you were there to plant a church, you could be there a very long time. It wouldn't be unusual at all to cost $80,000 a year to support somebody in a church planting endeavor in that part of the world. And they could be there a decade before they see anything. It takes money. Even if you support national church planters at a, at a, you know, at a lower rate because of the cost of living differences, it still takes money to plant churches. I praise God. That he has provided here within this fellowship sufficient funds for us to begin to launch church plants. And, beloved, you know what the cool thing is? We, as elders, came to this understanding that this is what we must do. And we prayed about it and we wrestled about it. And we became determined that this is what God would have for this fellowship. And that about six months later, God provided the financial means necessary to go forward and do that. It wasn't like there was money sitting around. We figured, oh, what are we going to do with it? We didn't have the money at the time. We said we wanted to do this god provided it later takes money fourth fourth critical aspect the mentoring the mentoring of planters okay i can get it all done i got all i got m's all the way princeton mandate right the man money the mentoring of planters Three ways that you can become involved in church planning very quickly. Three ways. You can participate with other churches in their church planting efforts. You can just participate with others that are doing it. Very valid. Beyond that, you can support a church planter that comes from outside of the local fellowship. That is, they're not raised up internally here within the fellowship, but they're committed to church planting. They're qualified. And you can become involved in them in their effort. And in fact, through the years, we've done just that. We are involved in a number of church planting activities that are going on all over the world. We call them missionaries, but that's what it is. The third, and this is where the mentoring comes in, is you can train your own church planters. You train your own. And this this is an area that really is where our heart beats. This is our desire, is for God to raise up and for us to train church planters that we can release them to plant churches. You know, this is the fabric of who we are as a fellowship. Let me just remind you, in the last 14 years... Ten people from this body have given up full-time employment in order to pursue a vocational ministry call of God. Ten people in 14 years. That's a lot. That is a lot. So this is part of who we are. And so we believe that God is going to continue to do that. He's going to raise up church planters and they're going to need to be mentored in the process. So in order to meet the plan, the desire for planting for churches The elders are in the process of of designing and putting together an internship, a church planting internship that will identify and mentor church planters in the years to come. So we're working on that right now. I didn't steal anybody's thunder, did I, for next week? I don't think so. (laughs) We're looking to recruit, train, mentor, release to ministry church planters, both domestically and internationally. Okay? Okay. Fifth, the method, the method, the mandate, the man, the money, the mentoring, the method. How do you do it? Well, in order to have a successful church plant, you have to determine at least three things. Okay. the first is the target location. Just like in real estate, most important thing in real estate is location, location and location. The most important thing in church planting is location, location and location. Where does a church need to be planted? Where is there opportunity? So you need to know the demographics of a particular area. Does it need a church? Is it fast growing? How many churches are in that community? What is available to them in terms of gospel witness? It's all kind of stuff that has to be looked at and evaluated. Okay, so you need a target location. Secondly, is the church planter's style? The style of the church planter. There are essentially two different styles founding and what's called catalytic. Okay, founding and catalytic. You're going to, might as well get used to these terms because you're going to hear them. Founding, catalytic. A founding church planter is one who plants a church with the intention of remaining with the church as its permanent pastor for many, many years to come. Okay, that would be a founding church planter. Then there are what we call catalytic church planters. A catalytic church planter plants a church with the intention of raising up leadership and then handing it off to someone else who will pastor the church in the years to come while that man moves on and plants another church. The Apostle Paul was a catalytic church planter. Okay? He had no intention of staying on as the pastor of any church that he planted. So the church planter style, founding or catalytic And third, the approach, the approach to church planting. There are a number of approaches. I'll just give you three of them quickly. One is called the seed method, the seed method. And that is the mother church sends out one or two of their most effective workers, like seeds being transplanted to try to establish a church. This is what's commonly called as a cold start method. You send out a couple of your best workers, they go into a neighborhood and they begin to knock on doors, meet people, share the gospel, win people to Christ, disciple them, gather them together in their living room, and over time a church grows. Okay, that's the seed method. Then there is the hive method, H-I-V-E, the hive method. It's like bees, right? When the beehive gets too big, what happens is that a queen develops and she leaves and takes workers with her and they form a new hive. So the hive method of church planting involves sending out a church planter along with, say, a half a dozen families as part of a hive. And so they immediately have a church plant to begin with. This is called a hot start, a hot start. And so they now are out in the community seeking to win people to the Lord and to grow a church. The seed method is what would normally be used internationally. The hive method would be used more locally locally. Third is what's called church renewal. It's another possibility, church renewal. And that is where the mother church sends out a church planter along with a ministry team. The ministry team itself would have some kind of, of recognized commitment on front to come and help the church planter revitalize a dead church. So that's another way to do it. Okay, So seed, hive, church renewal, those are just some ways to do it. Giving you a lot of information, a lot to think about, a lot to digest. Here's what I want you to do when you walk away from this. I want you before the Lord to just ask yourself in the days and weeks to come, God, how, how might you use me in the process of planting churches? How would you use me? If this is what the Great Commission means, how will you use me in that? Let His Spirit work in your heart. You might be surprised what comes. Let me pray. And Ron, I know we're late, but I want to sing this song anyway, okay? It's too good to pass. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your Spirit just enlightens us to understand it and apply it to our heart. Father, may You do just that now this morning. That which has been spoken that is of You and good and pure and right and true, may it reside in our hearts. And that which is, is not of You, Lord, that which is of me and is frail and faulty and sinful even, Lord, may You cause that to pass from our minds. That we would have only the pure milk of the Word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please?